It is, uh, it's a pleasure to be back together with you after uh, being away last week. Uh, how good it is for us to be able to gather in this way. And I, I thank Kevin. I think I saw him somewhere around here for uh, presenting the word to us last week. Uh, thank you, Brother Kev. If you would please in your Bibles turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. If you've been with us the last month or so, that's pretty much how we started the last five weeks. Please turn to Acts chapter 8 because we've been in this chapter for a little while now. Uh, but our goal today uh, is to finish this particular chapter. Uh, also, uh, Jeff Simpson led worship here with us tonight. Jeff and, or this morning, Jeff and Linda are going to be um, giving us a little bit of a highlight of what's going on in Kenya. Uh, as you know, they're missionaries there. Many of you know they're missionaries there in Kenya, and so they're going to share a little bit of a report uh, toward the conclusion of this morning's time together. Why don't we pray together? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. We thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of the working of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, how you bring all these things together and you sit us down in this particular place that we might hear from you. And we ask that that indeed would occur this morning, Lord, that we would have hearts that are prepared to receive. Well, you know uh, our tendencies, you know our hearts, our minds oftentimes are in one place. Uh, we're in one place, but they're in another. We're thinking about what we're doing later in the day. We're thinking about the things that occurred throughout this particular week or what might occur in the week upcoming. But we pray that, Lord, by your spirit, you might draw us in. That just for a little bit, we would be able to sit and in an unhindered way hear from you. Lord, that you would cause your holy word to come alive within each one of our hearts. Lord, that it would do that work that it has done in countless souls, that it would do that in each one of our hearts this morning. Lord, may your word go forth this morning. May it be mixed with faith in the hearer and may there be great blessing for every one of us. We ask our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 8. And I'll remind you, as we make our way uh, to this particular place in the book of Acts, that the history of the first century church, we're about five years after Jesus was raised uh, and ascended into heaven. And the history uh, of those first five years of the church was primarily remaining there in Jerusalem. The apostles were there in Jerusalem. They were teaching the people. Many, thousands and thousands, were coming to know Jesus, believe the gospel. And the apostles were there teaching them, grounding them in the word of God in the, and in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, some people came to Jerusalem, heard these things, stayed a little bit, and went to where they lived and had to go. But for the most part, the church remained right there in Jerusalem, even though God's intention was, it, was for it to expand outside of the city of Jerusalem. And so the Lord had to intervene to some degree, and through persecution, had to send the gospel forth as people ran for their lives and came into some city, I guess, breathing heavily. And where are you coming from? Why are you breathing so heavily? Well, we're running for our lives. Well, who's out to get you? And that opened an opportunity for them to communicate the gospel as they explained their circumstances. And we saw the Lord use that in a great way. Remember that word when it said the church was scattered abroad, that word scattered means planted as if by design. We're not just throwing seeds in the air. Planted a firm road. This is where God wanted those people to go so that the gospel might expand outside of Jerusalem as Jesus had instructed his disciples to do so. One of the examples of those men going forth we looked at a couple of weeks ago and that was this fella Philip. Well before that it was a fella by the name of Stephen. Stephen as you remember there in Jerusalem preached the gospel, and he was killed for doing so. The people had heard enough. The religious leaders had heard enough, and they weren't interested in any more, and they put him to death, stoned him to death. 
for what he was doing. The subsequent result, it seems as if the religious leaders were just filled with power, uh, in their minds at least, filled with a rage, and they began to pour that out on the church. The Bible calls it an intense persecution. That sounds horrible, but God was in it. And though it was horrible, God was going to use it. And again, as I introduced already, he, one of the men that he worked in was this fellow by the name of Philip, who went down to Samaria, and he began to teach the people. And the people began to respond, and many believed. And the scripture says many demonstrated that belief by being baptized. Well, that brings us to where we left off. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, I want you to leave Samaria. He says, rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is a desert place. Notice verse 27, and he rose and he went. Now, I know Will read earlier the context of these things here, so I'm not going to reread it uh, again. But here's Philip in the midst of a revival. Lots and lots of people there in Samaria hearing about the good news of Jesus Christ finding out, discovering it can be applied to their lives, and they do that, they apply it to their lives, the church is growing. And at the center of that work is this man, Philip. If you look at sort of the context of things there, it, it's not showing that things were kind of dying out, and so Philip is looking elsewhere, you know, where's the next big thing that I can go to? He's right there in the midst of it. Many are coming to know the Lord, and God says, Philip, I want you to leave here. And I want you to go, he says, I want you to rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down to Gaza. Notice it says there at the end of verse 26, which is a desert place. Now, there, in that day, there were two main routes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza's down on the way, you, can, you know where the Gaza Strip is today. It's down on the way to Egypt. And there's two main ways from Jerusalem to get from Jerusalem to Gaza in that particular day. One of them was sort of a bustling trade route that the majority of people took. The other was sort of this remote, seldom used desert road. So when it says it was a desert place, it's specifically referring to the road that this person we're going to learn chose uh, to take down to Gaza on that particular day. Luke says it is a desert place. He's not referring there to Gaza. He's referring to this particular road that leads to Gaza. And through an angel, the Lord speaks to Philip, instructs Philip, I want you to leave this good work that is occurring here in Samaria, and I want you to go to a desert place. Again, Philip is being used greatly there in Samaria. The revival is breaking out, and it's at like this high point. Great things are occurring. And it's precisely in that moment that God, through his, this angel, calls Philip to leave the area. He's in a good area, doing a good work, reaching many people, but the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, I want you to leave this place, and I want you to go to a desert road. I want you to go from Samaria to a lonely road where you likely aren't going to run into anyone on that desert road that winds away from Jerusalem into the deserts on the way to Gaza. Now notice in our passage, Philip isn't told why. So it doesn't say, rise and go to the road down to Gaza because there's a guy there I want you to meet. It doesn't say rise and go down to Gaza because there's a very important official. And if we can reach that guy, lots of people are gonna listen to him. He's not told that. He's not told that through that official, many others are gonna come and hear about the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. Philip isn't even told that, look, I know there's a lot of people here responding, Philip, but to, even to me, God, even to me, one person is, is important. So I need you to go. He's not even told something like that to support his going. He's just saying, he's just told, I want you to rise and I want you to go to the desert place. Verse 26 tells us that. Notice verse 27, to his credit, it says, and Philip rose and he went. Philip submitted himself 
to God's plan. And he goes without objection. We can imagine the objections that Philip could have raised. I think these are objections you and I might have raised. Philip could have said, Lord, I'll head down toward Gaza, but I can't go down there now, Lord. There's too much going on here in Samaria now for me to head down to a desert place. Lord, I'll go, I just can't go now. Philip could have said something like, Lord, I agree, we need to get someone down there to Gaza. It just can't be me. I'm too important to what's going on here in Samaria to go. So Lord, we should send someone, just not me. Philip could have said, the road that leads to Gaza. Why would I want to go start a ministry on a desert road that leads to Gaza? Philip could have said to the Lord, Lord, not there. There's plenty of other better places. I just went online. I found this particular demographic place, and for $500, they could tell me the best place to plant a church so that people will come. Philip could have said that to the Lord. Philip doesn't say any of these things. Philip says, goes. Rise and go. Philip rose, and he went. I have to imagine that didn't make a lot of sense to Philip. And yet in obedience, he does what God calls him to do. The longer I walk with the Lord, I, I started walking with the Lord when I was in high school, uh, or shortly in that process there. So 33 years ago or so, walking with the Lord. And the longer I walk with the Lord, seek to understand the Lord, feel like I'm getting a, a grip on, on who the Lord is, the more it's just nailed down in my heart that God's ways are not always our ways. God chooses to do things that we would never choose to do, and he chooses to put us in the midst of it and says, I'm going to blow your mind as I do this particular thing that you would never choose to do as I do this particular thing with you in the middle of it. That surprises us. It shouldn't. The scripture says that's the reality. Isaiah chapter 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways so much higher than your ways, and so are my thoughts so much higher than your thoughts. So we know that. We've read our Bibles. And yet we struggle with really grasping that, believing that. And so when the Lord calls us to rise and go, leave this bustling revival that is taking place and go to a desolate place where you may see nobody, we find ourselves second-guessing the Lord. Lord, why would you do it that way when this way is so much better? God, we sometimes say this, God, why are you taking so long? Have you ever said that to the Lord? You believe the Lord said, this is what we're going to do, and you Lord, why is this taking so long? God's ways are not our ways. We say things like, God, why now? Why now? Or even, why not right now? We find ourselves objecting to what the Lord is doing. Sometimes, many times, we have to go against our natural inclinations and just simply be obedient. What is God calling you to do? What is God calling me to do? Many times we don't understand, but we just need to obey. Philip does that. He demonstrates that. And so he rose, rises and he goes. And there on that desert road, don't you know, he came across a caravan. It says that he came across an Ethiopian eunuch, an official who was in his chariot. Now, if he is this important official that this, the passage goes on to say that he is, he wouldn't have been traveling by himself. There would have been multiple chariots, many chariots, and a number of other people running alongside. There would have been scores of people that were with this particular official. So here is Philip on this desert road where he hasn't seen a soul probably for hours and hours or day, a day or so. And then all of a sudden, here comes a caravan with five, six, seven chariots and a bunch of people running alongside this chariot. Verse 27 continues, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, who was queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, Ethiopia in those days was much larger 
much more influential in the world than the Ethiopia of our days. So you've heard of Ethiopia. You can probably picture it on a map. In the times of the scriptures, Ethiopia was a great empire. And it consisted of nearly all of East Africa, which was south of Egypt. This is one of the key reasons there is a road that goes down to Gaza so that people could get to places like Egypt and further south to Ethiopia. And so there in the middle of nowhere, this desert place, Philip encounters an Ethiopian official, which, who Luke points out was in charge of the Queen's treasury. Now, the Secretary of the Treasury is an important position in our day. It was perhaps the second most important position in the entire empire of Ethiopia in that day, second only perhaps to the queen. And so this man is a very important official. If you're trying to picture this man in your mind, call to mind the most successful individual who seemingly has the world at his feet. That was this particular official. And yet interesting, though he seems to have the world at his feet, what we see, though, is that this man who could have had everything that he wanted, no doubt, that there's an internal longing within him that he was not satisfactorily able to fulfill. His success in life wasn't answering all the questions of life. And so, though, even though he's not a Jew, at least not by birth, he makes his way to Jerusalem that he might learn a little bit of the God of the Jews. Now, we've read the Gospels, many of us. We've read the early chapters, if you've been with us here on Sunday, we've done it the last few months, of the book of Acts. And so it's not hard for us to figure out, to comprehend what he encountered when he got to Jerusalem. Almost certainly, he would have found the legalism of the Jewish leaders, of the Pharisees. He would have took, taken note of, notice of the materialism of the Sadducees. He would have seen religious leaders that were steeped in their traditions instead of the reality of relationship with God that his heart was longing for. He would have found people that were going through the motions instead of the life that his heart was longing for. I imagine this fellow left Jerusalem a bit disappointed. He had come all this way looking for something, something that his heart was yearning for, and he didn't find it. One thing the passage says he did discover, however, was a Bible. And either he bought, brought this Bible with him and brought it back, or he picked it up while he was there in Jerusalem. To be more specific, it would have been the, a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Look at the end of verse 27, he, or 8. He's there in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. He picked up a Bible, it seems. Now, to you and I, that might not mean much. We can go to Walmart and pick one up for five, ten bucks or something like that. We have scores of copies inside that people oftentimes will take because they don't have one. It may not seem like much to have your own Bible. But in that day and throughout much of history and in even some parts of the world today, to have your own copy of the scriptures or to even have a portion of the scriptures would have been a quite expensive undertaking. And so this man who hadn't found what he was looking for through his experience in Jerusalem didn't allow that to stop him from continuing his search. The scripture says, if you search for me with all of your heart, you will find me. And so this guy who didn't find what he was looking for in the representatives of the Jewish faith looks instead to the book of the Jewish faith. He takes the scriptures, for perhaps they will reveal what it is he's looking for. And, and I'll tell you, he couldn't have been more right. Verse 29 goes on. It tells us that the Holy Spirit tells Philip, go over and join that chariot. Rise and go. Then he gets there. Go over and talk to that chariot over that guy over there in the chariot. Once again, we see Philip proceeds to do so. Verse 30 says, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he said to him, Do you understand what you are reading? Once more, we see Philip is obedient to God's leading in his life. 
Now, that's not a small uh, matter here to run up to this official surrounded by all kinds of people and things like that. When Philip runs up alongside of this chariot, he's not just encountering this Ethiopian eunuch, he's encountering the man's entire entourage that made up the caravan for safety reasons and also just simply to minister to the needs of this important official. This man would have been surrounded by a dozen or more people, probably more than a dozen people. So Philip, coming alongside of the Ethiopian official's chariot would have been similar to our coming alongside of uh, the, the motorcade of the vice president or something. You try and stop the motorcade of a governor or the vice president or the president of the United States and see what happens to you. And so Philip here obeys in a way that is hard. That's, uh, well, I don't know. We get, God says, why don't you tell that guy I love him? Oh, Lord, I don't know. And we're shied away by those things. Philip's lucky he didn't get taken down by the Secret Service. But he runs up alongside of this chariot, and he asks such a cool question. Here's this guy reading the scriptures. Now, in that day, when people read, they primarily read out loud. In our day, we, we don't tend to do that unless we're with a bunch of people. But here, they would, they would read out loud. Even if they were technically by themselves, reading to themselves, they would read out loud. So Philip comes alongside of this chariot, and this man is reading the prophet Isaiah. Talk about an open door. Lord, just give me an open door to, to know if, you know, I should go through it. Well, here's a guy reading the Bible. Philip doesn't have to wonder if the guy is interested in spiritual things because the reading material makes it plain that he is. One of the most important things that we can do, I, I, I sense, I, as I know people here, that our desire is to communicate the good news to other people in a way that they would understand and respond and find that which many of us have found, the forgiveness of our sins that is found in Jesus Christ. Many of us have that desire. Our reluctance is, I don't know what to say, I don't know if people will respond, what if they punch me in the nose? You know, we have a reluctance to these things, but deep down that's our desire, is to see people come to know the Lord. One of the most important things that you can do as you begin your day, as you go about your day, is pray that God would give you open doors and that you would have the boldness to go through those doors. Here, Philip is given an open door. And believing, I don't know how he couldn't, that God kind of set these things up, he sort of cast out the fishing line. He cast out the net to see, maybe this guy will bite. Maybe it'll lead to a conversation. Maybe he's the reason why the Holy Spirit told me to come here. He doesn't know for sure, but let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And so he asked the question, do you understand what you are reading? It's such a good question. It's inoffensive. And yet, it's sort of this subtle, gracious offer. Look, I'll explain it to you if you don't. Philip doesn't begin with his prearranged pitch. I think sometimes we do that. We have our gospel presentation down to a pitch. And we start with it, and we, we're going to go down this particular road. I don't really, it doesn't matter who's in front of me. This is the direction I'm going. Peter understands his, or excuse me, Philip understands his listener. He begins by asking the man a question. He begins with where the man himself is at. Again, not knowing how the guy's going to respond. The guy could say, get away from me, security. And the security could come and take Philip away. Or the man could say, no, I don't. I don't understand what I'm reading. Would you be willing to help me? But Philip will never know if Philip doesn't ask. And so Philip asks the man the question. Now, of course, this wouldn't be much of a Bible story if the Ethiopian said, get away from me. Um, it would be kind of a, a letdown of a story. And so, of course, in verse 31, the man responds, well, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip into the chariot. I'm sure Philip is standing there, well, I'm here. You know, I could, I could guide you. How can I understand if nobody guides me? Now, that's an important word there, that word guide. You recall that when Jesus once described the Jewish authorities to his disciples, he referred to them as blind guides. J 
Jesus said this, let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now, Jesus wasn't using some euphemism to describe these teachers. That's an actual term. That word guide is an actual term. It's used oftentimes in the scripture to reference a person that could provide authoritative teaching and interpretation. So the man is saying, I don't have an authoritative teacher that can teach me and interpret for me what it is. So, of course, I don't understand. He says, how can I understand what the passage is about? There's nobody to teach me. In humility, very important, this very important official, in humility, readily admits his need for somebody else to help him, to guide him, to teach him, that he might understand God's word. And so he invites Philip to join him in the chariot. Verse 32 goes on. Now the passage of scripture that the man was reading was this. We already know it's from Isaiah. The specific passage, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now we know that passage is Isaiah chapter 53. It just so happens that when Philip comes across this man, maybe again the first person or group of people that he saw in his entire trip out there, it just so happens that the man is reading Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, that portion of scripture, Hebrew expositors, Hebrew teachers describe it as the pinnacle of the prophecy of Isaiah and perhaps the whole Old Testament. That the first 52 chapters of Isaiah are building up to this chapter. The whole Bible is building up to this chapter. And it just so happens that this is what the man is reading. This is the portion of the book that the whole prophecy is leading up to where the seemingly defeated, this is what the passage is about, where the seemingly defeated servant of God nevertheless proceeds to a final and a glorious triumph. Isaiah 53 provides the clearest description of the suffering Messiah in all of the Old Testament, perhaps only rivaled by Psalm chapter 22. And in God's wonderful planning, this Ethiopian man is reading the amazing and specific prophecies of Isaiah 53 describing the sin-bearing work of the Messiah to come. And again, he's doing so just as Philip comes jogging by. If you haven't read Psalm 52, starts in verse 13 through Psalm 53, verse 12. If you haven't read it lately, I encourage you to do so. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Some have even questioned whether it was written six, seven hundred years before Jesus because of how clearly it points to Jesus. Clearly, that couldn't have been written before. Somebody wrote it after and inserted it in there is what people will suggest. If you haven't read it lately, I'd encourage you to do so. There is no chapter in the Old Testament which more clearly depicts a doctrine that is called the doctrine of vicarious atonement. Now, I know that's a big word. It's kind of you have to think it through and figure out what it means. The word atonement, it means covering. And in the context of Scripture, it refers to a covering for someone's sins. The word vicarious means in the place of another. We often use the word in a negative sense when we're, we're talking about a parent who's trying to live vicariously through his children. A lot of dads do this when their kids get on the, the ball field or something like that. They want their kid to be great because they were never great or never got to where they thought they were going to. And we say, oh, he's trying to live vicariously through his kid. And so the doctrine of vicarious atonement then, it speaks of a covering for sin that is accomplished not by the sinner, but rather through the efforts of another. Do we all have that? That's vicarious atonement. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That though we are the sinners, our sin has been covered because of the work of another. That our sin has been covered 
because Jesus Christ, the sinless one, bore that sin on the cross. Again, I'll leave you to read Isaiah 52 and 53. But here's a couple of key verses from there. In 53.4 it says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 53.5, He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. 53.6, God the Father laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And so the eunuch's question then is about whom does this passage speak? We see that there in verse 34. He says, who was this man that died a sacrificial death on behalf of others? Again, talk about a wide open door. The door's not, not only open, the windows are open. Philip, any way that he wants to move forward, he can get into this particular guy's house to begin to communicate with this fella. And he proceeds and he begins to point the man to Jesus. Look at verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip took that scripture and the many other scriptures that point to Jesus as the Christ. And he explained to this man how they were fulfilled by a carpenter from northern Israel in the town of Nazareth. Here's this Ethiopian eunuch. He's very rich, he's very powerful, he's very influential. But notice, Philip preaches to him the exact same thing that he preached to the lowly and despised people of Samaria. And the reason why he could preach the same message to, to those two very different people is because both of those groups of people and individuals needed Jesus. This man needed this suffering Messiah as much as everyone else in the world needs Jesus. Everyone needs to come into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so no matter who you encounter, some super smart individual with their PhDs, some average run-of-the-mill individual that just kind of goes about their day, some young person who hasn't come to some great understanding of things yet just because they're young and haven't had the opportunity, no matter who you come into contact with, the gospel is what that person needs. That that individual is a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus Christ is that savior. You don't have to change your message to reach smart people or to reach so-called dumb people or to reach old people or young people or people from Ethiopia, or people from Samaria, or people from Jerusalem. Preach Jesus. Verse 36 goes on, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, evidently, as Philip is explaining things, baptism is mentioned there. Baptism is mentioned as to... It's an outward demonstration by those that have trusted in the work of Jesus Christ that explains that work that is going on in that particular person's life. Philip must have talked about this. So the man sees some water out there in the desert. They come across some rare place where the water is. And the eunuch says, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized right now? It's his way of saying I acknowledge this Jesus of Nazareth to be the Christ and to be my Savior. Why shouldn't I confess him? Why shouldn't I do it right now, the eunuch says. And so we read in verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and there Philip baptized him. Now you can imagine the rest of the caravan. Maybe they were overhearing what Philip said, maybe they weren't. Why are we stopping? What are we doing? We're taking a swim? Is that what we're doing? What's going on here? And you can see, I imagine Philip kind of goes down into the water with him. They talk a little amongst themselves, and Philip says this, and the man says that to Philip. Maybe Philip says some kind of a prayer. He looks up into the heavens. Next thing you know, Philip's trying to drown the man. Puts him down under water. The service comes running in, secret service here. You can imagine the caravan. What is going on here? 
as they're trying to understand this. And through this man's public testimony, he's communicating the gospel. He's preaching the gospel, in this case, with his actions. He's publicly baptized for all to see. The scripture exhorts those of us that are in the faith that we be baptized to publicly demonstrate that faith. Now, please, I hope we all understand this. Baptism will not save you. It's not a matter of, well, I believe this, but unless I get baptized, then I'm not saved. Belief is what saves an individual. But what baptism does is it allows a person to communicate outwardly a work that is going on inwardly. Next week, we're going to have a baptism. If you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ, but you do want to obey the scriptures and follow the Lord in that way by publicly being baptized and proclaiming what God has done in your life, then I'm going to encourage you to come up and see me after service. We're going to have it. I think it's a perfect day to do it. It's July 4th. It's a day we as a nation celebrate political liberty. The scripture says, if the Son of Man sets you free, you are free indeed. What better day to publicly declare it? So if you've never been baptized and you've been thinking about it, maybe you're a recent believer, maybe you've been a believer a long time. I was baptized as a baby. I came to know Jesus for myself when I was 17, 18 years of age. And I realized, you know what? I need to, as an adult now, publicly obey the scriptures. And so I was baptized at that point in time. Maybe you've been a believer for a while, but you've never been baptized. Come and see me when service is over, and we'll get you all set up for next week. It should be a sweet time. Let's conclude our teaching looking at verse 39 and 40. It says, Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now let's just admit the obvious. That's certainly unusual that this fellow would be taken up in the spirit and transported to some other location. Suddenly, miraculously removed from that place in the desert, finds himself 34 miles away in this town of Azotus. How did God do this? I don't know. You can search and tell me. Could God do this? Sure he could. The same God that says in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, those of us that are in Christ will be called up. Yeah, of course, if he can do that with millions of people, he can do it with one guy. And he does that here with this fellow, Philip. Philip's gone. The eunuch goes on his way. Technically, he doesn't need Philip anymore. Philip was the messenger that brought him to the master. And he goes on his way with his copy of the scriptures. Tradition tells us that through that man, the gospel made its way to Egypt and further south into Ethiopia. But Philip finds himself at Azotus. That's a big one. I've always wanted to be on a helicopter. That's a big one. Philip finds himself in Azotus. Notice. He'll go from Azotus, which is up the coast from Gaza. He'll go from there and follow the coast another 60 miles, and he'll end up in Caesarea. So if you know Israel a little bit, you know that the western border is the Mediterranean Sea. And he, he's basically going from Gaza, Azotus, and all the little towns in between, and he'll end up in the Roman city of Caesarea. We go there when we go to Israel, and boy, the archaeological discoveries that they have found in that city are, are remarkable. Uh, it'll, that's the first place we go. It'll just blow your mind when you get there. And that's where he ends up. Acts chapter 21 tells us that he, he settles there in Caesarea. Gets married. He has four daughters. Raises those daughters in the Lord. The scripture calls them uh, prophetesses, these young ladies. But Philip, on his way from Azotus, eventually to Caesarea, what's he do? He preaches the gospel. The gospel goes forth. And so we go back to where I started this morning. The gospel seemingly was stuck in Jerusalem. It just sort of remained there in Jerusalem. People could come and get it and then go. 
But persecution drove it out of Jerusalem, drove it to Judea, drove it to Samaria, drove it to Gaza, and then Azotus, and all of these cities in between on its way to Caesarea. Truly, the church was becoming God's witness to the uttermost parts of the earth, just as Jesus had instructed. Amen? Amen. Well, today we're going to finish our time together, and Jeff and Linda Simpson, uh, a missionary couple from our fellowship uh, that for the last seven or eight years has been uh, in the nation of Kenya, East Africa, how interesting, uh, they are going to come, they're going to share a little bit about what the Lord has done this last year. As many of you may recall, because of COVID 18 months ago, they came home a little bit earlier than normal, uh, but they eventually made their way back there in September, and there's restrictions to that work. So my good friends, I was nervous. It looks like you went to the lavatory. I was like, come back. I'm almost done. So do your magic. I could always count on Greg to go a little longer. I knew I had time. I knew I had time. Sorry if we made him a little longer than <laughs> Kipco. Um, we wanted to, first of all, I know many of you have known us for years and years. We've been here part of Calvary Chapel for 24 years since the first Sunday years and years ago. Um, but now we seem like the new people sometimes. So some of you might be like, who are these people? And we just wanted to introduce ourselves a little bit for those of you who don't know us. We've been uh, part of Calvary Chapel for 24 years and eight years ago, we, uh, Calvary Chapel sent us out as missionaries uh, with uh, support from so many of you and from the church itself to go out and see what God was doing in Kenya. Um, we didn't really have a clear picture of what was going on at that point in our lives. We knew God was saying go, and so we went. And uh, us, Linda and I, and our two kids, Christian and Faith, were there together for five of those years, and then Christian came back for university, um, or college, and faith also. And so, uh, so yeah, that's us, a little bit about us. And um, <coughs> several of you here have come to Kenya. So if you've come to Kenya, yeah, woohoo! Wow, that's wow. a lot of you. <laughs> like, if I asked how many have been to Harrisburg, it would probably be fewer. So oh. uh, we'll, um, we're so grateful for your partnership with us in the gospel in Kenya. So our mission has always been the same, is to, um, to disciple people. And that's uh, still what we're doing, but we're just going to go through very briefly, like, what, what do we do and what's changed for this year, especially as, as things have been growing? Um, so we've been, from the beginning, teaching God's word, which um, very consistently, which is really important um, for everyone, of course, how to live by the, the word of God and how to obey and follow Jesus and everything that he calls us to do. So that's always been the mission. But we started in the beginning with young children, preteens, and young teenagers. Is that, that's who we were first teaching and, you know, several of you know that we had kids club programs and we go to schools and we'd have tutoring programs and we'd be sharing with them and teaching them God's word consistently and growing them and caring for them and pouring into them. So the first few years of being there was mainly that mission alone, just having them sit and listen and be poured into those first few years. And so as we, uh, we were making disciples there, we know part of discipleship is for people to serve. And so as these young people were in high school and learning to be what it is to be a Christian, part of that is for them to serve. So they were involved. We started getting them involved in teaching Bible studies to the younger children in the, in the group going, uh, we started that way and has developed into much more over the years. So uh, also, we noticed that many of them had no opportunity to finish past eighth grade. And so we, uh, along with 16 of you now even, and so many others throughout the years, have sponsored uh, high school students so that they continue their education throughout. And so as, as they were sponsored, they also learned to serve within the church and within the community we have. So after they finished high school, you know, at first, when we first started in Kenya, we, were, we had American interns with us for six months at a time through an organization we were working with. And then as the, 
as the Kenyans were growing, the young people were growing, and we started training them, and they started doing the work, we realized it was time that they became the interns. So after they graduate high school, we select several of them to become interns with us for a year, um, for at least a year. And they come and they serve full time with us and they go to local schools and they serve in the community, community service, outreach, also um, developing the children, the kids club programs, teaching the word of God. So they be, and also learning a lot themselves. So we constantly giving them books to read and, and books of the Bible to study. So that's what they would do after is then spend that year becoming an intern with us. Uh, but some of them don't know when to call it quits, so they just want to continue serving. Um, some of them, after that year of internship, they do start college programs or some training course. Some of them are mechanics. Some of them are surgical assistant. There's a surgical assistant, teachers, social workers. So we have many studying different things, but along with them, um, as at the same time as they're studying, they want to continue serving in the ministry. And so we have some leaders after their interns for a year in college, but also serving in ministry, you know, at, in, during their free times. And then from there, some of them really felt the call to become full-time ministers, to be ministers to their own people, and even to get out of their communities and go serve in other areas of Kenya. So that's been a beautiful thing, starting as an intern, intern leader, and now full-time ministers. We have four right now who are in full-time ministry, a few others that are, who are being trained that way, who really feel that call to be full-time ministers um, of the gospel. And so we're training them. We pour into them. That's who we spend the most time with, are the interns, the intern leaders, and the full-time ministers, training them, supervising them, giving them ideas, praying for them, equipping them. And they're the ones now going out and doing the ministry even more on their own. And Jeff's going to share a little bit about what started this year um, in doing that. But now they're making disciples. So they started as teenagers doing that slowly. And now as they're getting older and older, they're pouring more and more in to the point where sometimes, like we had a baptism a couple months ago, we didn't even know some of the students who were being baptized because they've been the ones having Bible studies with them, pouring into them, discipling them. We don't even we don't even know some of those because we're making disciples who are making disciples. So, so this last year, in about November, we opened a center in a new community, where, our, like Linda said, our leaders, our young people, are leading, running the center, having classes like tutoring type of things, music, drama, art, dance, soccer, which we call football, um, girls' craft times. Um, but all included in all of those things are sharing the gospel with each. We're, we also have Bible studies as well, but specifically each of those activities, we connect with people and share the gospel. And so we see people within the community starting to come uh, I think we had 80 kids the other day at Kids Club and 30 teenagers at Kids Club, um, as we were just hearing the report from yesterday. Um, and, and then they also go out into the community and they serve. So people, it's, it was rainy season when we were leaving, so our young people will go out, fix people's roofs, or maybe dig a trench so the water isn't flowing into people's homes, um, as well as going out and sharing the gospel, just going, hey, how can I pray for you? Can I sh share with you something? And going and sharing the gospel with people around the community. And so it's been quite a blessing this year as those th things have developed. So the Youth Center is in a community that we, we've been praying for for a while to be able to go into and to reach. And the Lord provided a place to have the Youth Center to have some discipleship homes with some of our young adults, the guys and the girls to be living in that community. There are some unreached people in that community, and so they've been able to reach out to them, which has been beautiful. And now, some of our, our young adults now, young people, are going into another community that's kind of close by, but been pretty unreached, and has been, had a lot of criminal activity, and a lot of, just not investment, no investment there. 
and some unreached people who are there. So now they've been going there and they're hoping now to open a youth center. So one of our young adult ministers will be opening a center with a team there. Another one of our young adult ministers wants to go into the community where many of them grew up, just very close by still, but many, many young people there who need to be reached with the gospel, and he wants to start a center there. So what we're hoping is next year when we come back, we can say, hey, we have three youth centers now. It's really not about numbers, but we're so glad that we're reaching, they're reaching out. They have the call from God, they're going out, and we're supporting them as they go and do that. So one of the things that you could pray for, because of COVID, we, we used to visit many schools. Now we visit about two schools. Uh, and so for these last couple months, because COVID has kind of restricted our ability to go into schools because the government is not allowing that. So pray that that opens up. We have the chance to go and share with hundreds and hundreds of kids each week as our young people go into schools and teach the gospel and teach the word of God. Um, All right, let me just conclude with this. Um, we have about 60 young people who are sponsored through the program, and it's through people like you. So 16 of those students are actually sponsored by people from Calvary Mercer, and several others are through connections that you have made with others. Um, so it's really a beautiful thing to be able to support them, to be able to get educated, and then to be able to become interns and to be able to do this work. Calvary Mercer supports that intern missionary program as well as us. Several of you support us to be there. So we just want to say thank you so much. You are a part of this ministry and this mission. It cannot be done if we didn't have a team. It's truly that God brings us all together. We may be the ones on the ground there, but it really takes a collective effort to make it possible. Otherwise, we really wouldn't be able to do what we're doing without that. So we're really grateful. Our leaders now are actually choosing some new new students who need to be sponsored and they've given us their stories and we know that they're in great need and so they've selected some who need sponsorship for high school so if you're interested in being part of the mission and you haven't been yet and you want to know about that more you can come and talk to us um, or about knowing about any part of the ministry hopefully we'd love to see calvary mercer be able to come back uh, this year again last year obviously with covid it kind of restricted us but so if you're interested in that as well, talk to Will. Usually he's the one who organizes that. So we just thank you so much for, um, for being a part. And I hope you're encouraged by what God is doing in another place in the world. Thanks.